Episode 152 of the PJ Archive is an interview I did with the great Northern Irish guitarist, singer and songwriter Gary Moore. Gary began his career in the late 1960s when he joined the Irish blues rock band Skid Row, with whom he released two albums. He then joined Thin Lizzy, featuring his former Skid Row bandmate and frequent collaborator Phil Linnett, with whom he had the hit single Out in the Fields in 1985. Gary enjoyed solo success from the 1970s, most notably with the single Parisian Walkways, and his eighth studio album Still Got the Blues. Tragically, Gary died in 2011 at the age of 58. This interview took place in 2004, in London, where he was promoting his 14th studio album, Power of the Blues. Gary began by telling me how he first started playing guitar and about his early influences. And so the first week I had a guitar in my hands when my dad had come home on a Friday afternoon he asked me if I was interested in learning to play guitar. And a friend of his was selling a, a big Framus, it's called F-R-A-M-U-S, German guitar for a fiver. It was a huge cello-bodied sort of guitar. And I was only 10 at the time. So I went down to this guy's house and he, he let me take the guitar home with me. And I tuned it all wrong, but I learned to play Wonderful Land by the Shadows, which was in the charts at the time. And I kind of, I learned it all wrong, but I could kind of get the notes. So when I went back the next week to see this guy, he was supposed to be teaching me a bit. He was like laughing, you know, because my friends all used to hide behind the hedges around the back, you know, and listen to me playing and they'd be pissing themselves laughing and be struggling to sort of try and get a tune together. But you're not laughing now. I don't know, but I mean, I just, so I learned that tune and I learned to strum. I learned uh, Picture of You by Joe Brown. That was out at the same time. So right there you had a great grounding. You had ability to play lead guitar and melodies and strum and accompany yourself just from those two songs. That's, I mean, you know, that's kind of what you need, really. Do you still play it now for a laugh? Just I played it the other day. Did you? In a yeah, I was, I was telling everybody, no, 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 I don't play that song in a concert. Okay. No, I yeah. get killed. Well, <laughs> <laughs> I just played it at home the other day. I hadn't heard it for years and I, I sort of got the guitar out and played it again. But I, I loved I loved that tune because I loved the sound of Hank Mom's guitar and the echo and it just sounded like something from another world because before that, guitars were always in the background, you know, and there wasn't a lot of really great instrumental stuff around. So, if you were a guitarist at that time in the 60s, you know, and you were learning to play and you were a kid, that's what you went for. Brilliant. Definitely. That was the next big sort of turning point for me was when the Beatles came along because I loved George Harrison's playing. I still do. He was, he was a big hero of mine. And I loved the way he could create a really unpredictable but really fitting solo for a song. He would like, he, like in a hard day's night or something like that, for example, he would play what no one else would imagine. He would just come up with this sort of thing that nobody else would think of. And things like help. It was all very quirky and very kind of creative the way he played. But there were only tiny little short pieces in the middle of a song. But they were always part of the song. They always became part of the melody. And you could sing his solos, you know. You could remember all the solos. And that, for me, was a great grounding as well. I mean, I just thought the guy was amazing. But I, I, I loved the Beatles, again, at that time, if you were into music. The Beatles had a huge influence. The really big milestone came after that, which was the Blues Breakers with Eric Clapton. Right. And this is when the world turned upside down for me, really. This was the first time I heard the first track on this, All Your Love. This was the first kind of what I'd call a blues track that I was really aware of. It was by Otis Rush, but I didn't know who Otis Rush was at that time. I was only 13 or 14. And, when it, and I'd been playing, obviously, for a few years. But when this came out, it just completely blew me away because it was the first time I heard a guitar just really leap out of a record and really grab you and speak to you and sing to you and make you feel all kinds of things. It was an incredible moment. And after that, I just that was it for me. I just 
I mean, I knew what I wanted to be already, but that really kind of uh, convinced me that the guitar was the only thing in the world, really. And it was just, and it was Eric. It, 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 for me, it was a huge peak for him. It was kind of, it was a young guy kind of showing the world what he was made of. Because he'd come from the Arbirds, and he was, he was good in the Arbirds, but he made an incredible leap from uh, the Arbirds in one year to, he just sort of practiced a lot and mm. devoted a lot of time. And he was listening to John Mell's record collection, finally, and he had a huge blues collection. So he kind of educated himself, I think, through that, and he just devoted so much time to it. And he came out with this, and it completely blew everyone away. I mean, if you were a guitarist of my generation at that time, this changed your world, there's no doubt about it. He was the first guy to use a Les Paul and a Marshall that was noticed, that I can think of. And he, he was the first guy, he, he created on that record the basis of what we now call the rock guitar sound, that mm. distorted sound. You know, that mm. came from that record from my generation of guitarists. Have you played with them at all? No, I've never played with them, no. But I've played all these songs. Because <laughs> that was the thing. Because the mate of mine, uh, he, didn't, he went to a poor school and he could afford to buy the album, I couldn't. Mm. And uh, I had a little girlfriend at the time called Beverly something, I can't remember, this little tiny girl. And her friend was going out with him. I went around his, we were in his front room and he put this record on his little record player and that was it for me. And mm. I borrowed it after that and I don't think he got it back again. I, yeah. I couldn't afford to buy it, like I said, and I just wore it out. And he was always asking for it back and I don't think he ever got it, the poor mm. bloke. But he did a lot for me mm. by lending me that record. So I haven't got a vinyl collection anymore. I used to have a lot of vinyl records, but what invariably would happen would be throughout the 70s now, I was always moving around, so I used to leave all my records behind or if I'd break up with a girlfriend or whatever, I'd right. just always leave them behind. So I'd start to build a collection up and then I'd just leave them. So it's mainly CDs nowadays. And I just keep them. I keep some in my music room for when I'm working and stuff. I've got quite a few up there. Right. And then the rest I just keep in a kind of a, just a cupboard, really, off the living room. How many do you reckon you've got now, then? Oh, probably, I don't know, a couple of thousand. I don't know, quite a few. <laughs> I, I can't count them. They're all in boxes and stuff. Yeah. Like I do buy a lot of music still. I still go out and buy loads of music all right. the time. Probably spend more money on, on that than most things. And right. So I've, I, I tend to buy a lot of new stuff and just check it out. Even if I don't listen to it again, I like to um, like to listen to new stuff and see what it's like. And if I hear of a new guitarist or whatever, I'll always go out and check it out. How sort of wide-ranging is your taste in music? Pretty wide-ranging. Right. You'd be surprised. From what to what? Well, I mean, from uh, from blues to rock, to jazz, to classical, to folk, and back again. All kinds right. of music, really. I just I just like music, to be honest. I mean, obviously I don't play all those styles, but I have played quite a few of those styles over the years. I've played rock and I've played like fusion in the 70s, so that's kind of related to jazz, but I didn't do it very well. I didn't say I did it well, I just said I did it. And I've played like rock and I've played, you know, when I lived in Dublin, I used to play folk music sometimes because when you lived there, you used to, we used to go down the, the folk clubs, Phil in it and I, or just whoever was around, and just take guitars down there and play with the folk musicians as well, with the Irish uh, traditional players. Yeah. So that was a very good good time for music, really. It was good education. You, know, you, you could always put it this way. When I lived in Dublin, you could play every night of the week yeah. if you wanted. Because yeah. when you weren't playing with your own band, I was living with another band, and they were kind of sort of um, what they used to call acid folk or whatever in those days, like the Incredible String Band, that kind of thing. And they were related to that. They were called Doctor Strangely Strange, and I used to, I used to go out with them on my nights off and play with them. Sometimes I play the sitar, which I didn't know how to play properly, but it sounded okay. And if I didn't do that, I'd just play acoustic guitar with them. So, you know, there was always music. There was always some way to play music every night of the week. It was great. How long have you lived in, in Sussex? How long have you lived in the current house for? Uh, 
just a couple of years. Right. Yeah. But a detached Edwardian house, uh, five bedroom. Got a studio in there? No, I just have a music room. You know, it's like uh, I've given up all that thing of wanting to have a big elaborate studio at home. I like to actually go out and work. I find that a lot healthier because. I don't know, you just kind of get, it's more, there's more pressure and you get more done, I find. You just sort of, like when I've had kind of opportunities to work in home studios before, I, I find a lot of people don't use them. I know guys who've built really nice studios in their homes and they just don't bother going in there. And I didn't want to do that. I just think it's best to um, to rent a really good studio and you'll, you'll have much better equipment than you could ever put together yourself and let somebody else worry about the equipment and just do it that way. I, and I like that. And I also like to record in different places. Whereas if you've got your own studio, you've really got to do it there. Otherwise, it's a waste of money, and you've also got to make it pay for itself if you've got a big studio. So I just, I like to go to different places and record. Maybe know who you live with. I live with my partner Joe and my daughter Lily, and uh, Joe's an artist. Uh, we've been together for about seven years, uh, and I've got uh, children from my previous marriage as well. So, well, let's talk about something too. Your your new album. Does it seem like it's something you put as much work into as all the other ones, or well, how do you look at it? No, some albums have taken a long, long time to record. Like it was what, about five years ago called uh, Dark Days in Paradise, and it took about eighteen months to make. This one took a month, which mm. is how it should be because all my favourite records were recorded really quick. Funnily mm. enough, most of them, apart from Sgt. Pepper's and things like that. But like all the Jimi Hendrix stuff and the Eric Clapton blues, but they were done in a couple of days. So we just did it very live in the studio because the kind of music it is, it's kind of blues played with a very rock kind of an edge and we just approached it that way. We wanted to do it in a very normal, honest way and so we all played in the same room like we were playing in a rehearsal room or a gig. Some of the vocals even were live. We didn't overdub much at all. We just left it as raw as possible. I think it's the rawest record I've done in years and maybe ever. So it's very raw. And how much does it matter to you how it's received? Um, well, you wouldn't make records if you didn't want people to hear them. Anyone who says otherwise, I think, is just kidding themselves. But I don't go out of my way to be commercial or anything. I don't think I could. I don't think I know how to do that. I think when I've hit commercial success, it's kind of almost been luck or despite myself or whatever. I've still got the blues, sold millions of records. But at the time, we were just making a blues album because mm. we wanted to. So mm. I've never deliberately tried to go out of my way to be commercial. If I ever have got pulled in that direction, it's never really worked. I think if you try too hard doesn't work. I think what comes across to people is if they like the music and they get off from the feeling of the music, then they'll buy it. And if they don't, they won't. Do you have like a steady core of fans who will always buy your stuff? I, mean, you hope I, think, I think so, yeah. yeah. I think I've got a pretty loyal following. I mean, I can always go out and play decent-sized venues over here. I could still do I could still do the Albert Hall if I wanted it. I could do, not for 20 nights like Eric or anything, but I could do it and I could do, you know, Hammersmith and I can do reasonable-sized venues and they're the kind of size venues I like playing best anyway, to be mm. honest. When it gets too big, I think you lose a lot of the intimacy. When you get into Wembley and all that, and the sound's not so good, I think you lose a lot of that kind of immediacy, and it doesn't feel as good to me. Mm. Are you touring on the back of this album? Or? Yeah, we've got, we're trying to do some festivals in the summer. There's talk of doing a couple of gigs with Bob Dylan in Ireland. There's one in Stormont, and then there's one in Galway. Uh, Galway. You know about them, yeah. yeah. And supposedly we're doing them with them, but I haven't heard back from my agent yet. But that was the idea, anyway. Supporting him? Or yeah, just go. Yeah, just or like. With him on stage. Oh, not playing with him on stage. No. Funny enough, though, this will make you laugh. When I used to hang out at George Harrison's house, when he had the Travelling Wilburys, obviously yeah, Bob was in that. And I went round one night to George's for something. I can't remember what it was. And Bob was there, and he introduced me to Bob Dylan. And he goes, uh, a few days later, he said, "Now listen, Gary." George said, uh, "I'm just passing this on to you." I, he said, I wouldn't do it, 
personally, but Bob Dylan wants to know if you'll be in his band for the next tour. I says, how did this come about? And he says, well, Olivia and I were there, blah, 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 we were talking, and, yeah. and somebody said, well, why didn't you tell me he was looking for a job? And we said, well, he's not looking for a job. No, it's okay, you know, but... So he passed this on to me, and I was like, oh, my God, because I'd heard all these stories about Bob, you know, and... Change, just like, <laughs> he wouldn't do what they rehearsed and change the keys yeah, and so yeah. like, He did it with Tom Petty, didn't he? Yeah. But uh, it was nice to be asked, anyway. I mean, I'm a, I'm a Dylan fan, for sure. Yeah. But, uh, yeah, that was funny. It was funny. Here, this is Bob... Walking around your house, you know. So was he a childhood hero? Bob Dylan? Yeah. No, I w- I'd be lying if I said he was, but I appreciate him more now because at the time I didn't give a shit about lyrics. Mm. If there wasn't some really hot guitar happening on there, I wasn't interested at all, to be honest. I just wanted to hear guitar all the time. That's all I cared about. That's all the records I was into. Even if they did have good lyrics, that would be kind of by the mm. way. So, like, what, what I'd hit. Like when you met him, by the way? Just, just... Well, Bob Dylan? Yeah. Oh, it was only hello. He, he had soft little hands, remember little squidgy little hands. You, know, you remember people's handshakes, don't you, yeah. and stuff. And that was, he had his nutritionist travelling with him for some reason. Yeah. But he, we only said two words. He was like really shy, as far yeah. as I could make out. Did he look good? I can't, I just, he looked like Bob Dylan. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> It was just, you know, in the yeah. evening. But, you know, you meet people all the time, it's weird, it's like, and you go. So did he ask for you to, to work with him on these dates in Ireland? Or no, not at all. No, he, I don't know if he'd even want me on these dates, but it was, it was done through the promoter. <laughs> and you might do it. You, I'd like to do it, yeah, I'd love to yeah, do it, yeah. yeah. And when you play in, in Ireland, is it special to you? Yeah. yeah, I still like going back to Ireland. I mean, I love going back to Dublin because I've got very fond memories of Dublin and I just find it so easy going back and I can walk around. You know, Dublin's not a big place and... Mm. You see all the same people that you used to know when you lived there. It's amazing, really. A lot of the same people are still in the same pubs, playing the same songs for the same money, drinking the same amount of beer or whatever they drink. It's like it's funny. It's, but of course, having said that, the people haven't changed a lot, but the place has changed a lot. You know, they didn't have nightclubs in those days or legal drinking after-hours drinking places like they do now. So it's all changed a lot. But I love Dublin. It's a great place, and I love going. Out, you know, in the countryside, places like Glendalough, and I love going down to County Kerry and it's beautiful it's really lo- I love it there I, feel, I do feel very at home when I'm there because mm, Irish music is just worldwide now. yeah why do you think that is I don't know you know I think a lot of good bands have come out of Ireland there's been a lot of talent like well from Van Morrison U2 Rory Gallagher Finn Lizzy you know there's been a lot of good bands come out of Ireland still pretty ash people like that there's still a lot of bands coming out of Ireland I don't know I think like when we started, I was in a band called Skid Row. Yeah. And we came over here just before Thin Lizzy. Phil Lillard had been a member of Skid Row, for people that don't know that, and he got chucked out of the band because he wasn't a very good singer at that time. He didn't play bass, this is true. The bass player fired him because he couldn't sing in the studio. And then we continued as a three-piece, then Phil formed Lizzy. And we came over here, and you really had to try hard. That, that much I do know, because if you were from Ireland at that time, people didn't take you very seriously. Mm-hmm. So rather than get like a chip on your shoulder about it all, you had to like really, I mean, I never stopped playing the guitar in those days. You had to be so good. And also people were always winding me up coming back from England and said, don't even bother going over there. You've got no chance because everybody's just like Eric Clapton, Jeff Beck. Were they bollocks? It was like, nobody was like any of those guys. I was very disappointed actually. I saw very few guitarists that I hadn't heard of. It was only people like Ollie Holsall who played with a band called Pato and he was a great, great guitar player. But most of the people there was any good I'd heard of already. Mm. So, but it made me work a hell of a lot harder. So when I did come over, it was like, 
hey, what's the problem? You know, yeah, I'm not yeah. as bad as you made me out to mm. be, and they're not as good as you made them out to be. Yeah. So, so they're not more determined. Oh God, yeah, yeah, absolutely. I just mm. all day long I used to fall asleep with my guitar, and you know, I'd be playing it on the toilet everywhere. You could mm. go, you just wouldn't put it down. Just determination. A sheer determination. That's mm. the, that's how it was. If you came from from Ireland at that time, and you came over here, and people would just they'd still take the piss out of us and stuff, but. We were, you know, we were an okay band, and we could we could play. We knew that much, but you, you still had to prove yourself. Were you from a family of musicians? No, my dad used to be a promoter at one time. He used to run a ballroom in a place called Hollywood, but Hollywood with one L, so it's spent Hollywood. Hollywood yeah. So people would say Hollywood for some reason, and uh, he used to run a place there called the Queen's Hall, and he'd have lots of show bands. I don't know if you know much about Irish show bands, but they were kind of seven-piece bands, and they'd have a couple of brass players and. Like they'd all wear the same suits apart from the singer. And they were like, it was really corny stuff, really. And they used to do little steps together and really bad. And they'd play country and western, a bit of Irish music, a bit of top 20, whatever was happening at the time. And my dad let me up to sing with one of the bands once. And uh, I stood on a chair and I sang. So that was the first time I ever got on stage. And I definitely got the bug from that. How old were you? Six. What did you sing? Sugar Time. Sugar in the morning, yeah, sugar... Song. Was that who it was? Yeah, I couldn't even remember who it was, yeah, but yeah. that was, you know, I was a kid and that was the song that I used to hear on the radio. So I sang that, standing on a chair, and then didn't stop playing until a few years after that. But he also would have, he would have people like Eden Kane and Mike Sarn, who were like number one yeah. pop artists at the time, and I'd go along to the ballroom and he'd let me meet them sometimes, you know, they'd get their autographs. So it was very exciting for me yeah. to meet these sort of pop stars, and I suppose I got bitten by the whole thing around that time. And so none of your parents or grandparents were musicians at all? No, my dad, I think, fancied being a drummer. He used to bring bits of drum kits home oh. and put them under the stairs like a hi-hat, and he'd sit there go, he'd say, here, listen to this, you know. But he never got around to getting the whole kit for some reason. I'm glad he didn't, it wouldn't have been big enough to get it in there. What about your mother, what did she do? She was our mother, she used to sing at school, she had quite a nice singing voice, and... She used to harmonise sometimes with me and sit there, but she wasn't. No one was a professional musician by any means. Maybe know your parents' first names. Yeah, my dad's called Bobby, not after the footballer, right. and my mother's called Winnie. Right. So Gary yeah. Moore is your real name. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. But I was named after. Well, I've got three names: Robert, William, Gary. But it is my real name. But I've, I've always been known as Gary. But um, apparently, when I was being christened. The, the minister said, and I christened this child Robert William, and my dad shouted out, I'm Gary, at the last minute, and that became my name. That's true. Yeah. Have you got brothers and sisters? Yeah, I've got one brother, and I've got three sisters. Yeah, my brother, he plays a bit of guitar. He's called Cliff, and he's ten years younger than me. And then I've got a sister, Maggie. Uh, she's not a musician. I've got another sister called Pat, and she's a bit of a singer. And then I've got another sister called Michelle, and she's a full-time mother. Right. Are yeah. they all based in Ireland still? No, they live in Western Supermare, actually. All of them? Uh, Maggie, my sister, who's the closest to me in age, she lives with my mother down there, and then, you know, there's various grandchildren from my mother, you know, says my brother's got a couple of kids, and both my sisters got children. Two, th- all, three, all three have got children now, sorry, because one of them just had a baby a couple of years ago. So they all live down there, really. My dad lives in Belfast. Right, so yeah. he's the only one left, then? Well, yeah, they split up uh, when I was about 17, not long after I left home, but he, right. he's back there now, yeah. He's nothing to do with the dance halls or anything like that. No. Oh, no, 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 he's... he's no. Tired. Yeah, he's 70 right. now, yeah. And how do you look back upon your Irish childhood? Was it a working-class background? Oh, definitely, yeah. Yeah. Castle well, or flat? Or no, no, we, we owned our own house, but we we lived near Stormont. It's one of the reasons I wanted to do this gig in Stormont with Bob Dylan, because I used to bunk off school there a lot, and I used to 
sit and daydream and storming a lot, so it would be just nice to go back and play. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and it was also where my career started from, because these guys sort of kidnapped me in a van one day. They were like people I knew, and they were in a band, they needed someone to stand in for their guitar player who had a crash. And from that sort of kidnap, as it were, I got to meet Skid Row. It was weird. So my yeah. career started sitting on the lawns in Stormont. Getting kidnapped in Northern Ireland is not a good thing, though. It was, was a, it was a friendly one. Right. It wasn't friendly fire, it was a friendly yeah. kidnap. And I used to uh, sit on the tractor when I was five. There was an old guy called Alex Gates, or whatever his name was, and he was a friend of my granddad's. And so it was just a special place to me. He used to let me sit on the tractor and help him mm. cut the grass in Stormont. So it was always a very nice so place. Quite idyllic, then, your childhood, considering everyone. No, was it wasn't at all. Right. No, don't get the wrong idea, but I don't want to go into that too much. Either. What, the it wasn't. Troubles? No, I left before that. No, no, no. Just at home, it wasn't. I, being at home wasn't idyllic at all. Because your parents didn't get on. Yeah, I'll be, I'll be diplomatic. Okay. Yeah, and uh, you know, and also when you're a teenager, nobody gets on with their parents from that age. And my dad threw me out a couple of times, and we used to argue a lot. And you know, that was one of the reasons I left home to join Skid Row. I was like. Great, let me out of here. Moved to Dublin, 100 miles away. I was only 16, I just left and that was it, and I never went back. Well, that was a really brave uh, thing to do at that age. I didn't think it was brave at all. I thought it was really exciting. I didn't think twice about it. I mean, it was all I wanted to do was be a professional musician, and there I've got a place to live, and I was earning money from playing music, from doing the thing I loved. So for me, it was so exciting. But you left school at 15? With yeah, I left school just as I was doing my O levels, yeah. And then I, I had a job for a couple of months, and then that was it. And then I, these guys came along and off Any away. memorable sort of reports from the teachers saying, this guy will never go anywhere, all that sort of stuff? Probably, yeah. Pretty the school I went to is pretty rough, you know. It was like, uh, it was just a normal sort of comprehensive school. Ashfield Boys School. Still there? Yeah. Oh, yeah, because it was funny, because I took my son a few years ago. I took him over to Ireland. They rented a car, and I went in the playground one night when the school was closed. and did a few wheelies around the playground. It's like you always want to do, don't you? That's always, yeah. <laughs> the lights are off as well. <laughs> this is where I used to go to school. Yeah, so that was fun. Fantastic. That's still there, yeah. Yeah, yeah I, I wasn't a great fan of school at all. Did anyone say to you when you were young though that you would be outstanding in later life? There was something about you that... Once I started playing guitar, people used to pick on me in terms of, you know, they'd single me out as a good musician, which is what happens. If you can play, people do. They, you get noticed, don't you? And then you start you start taking notice of the fact that you're being noticed, so you realise that you've, that you've got a talent or whatever you want to call it, a gift, and you develop it. But to be honest, whether I was noticed or not at that time, I was just going to do that anyway. That's that for me. Once I picked up the guitar, I understood it so quickly. That's, this is how I remember it anyway. And I wasn't very good at anything before that. I tried to play piano when I was seven, and I was absolutely rubbish at it. And I wasn't any good at school, and I wasn't any good in the Boy Scouts, but this was something that I could totally just live through, if you like. It was For me, this was it. I found what I want to do here. Yeah. This is me. Because you uh, said your dad introduced you to the guitar. He yeah, to yeah. Why did he think you'd like a guitar? Because yeah. he, he knew I loved the sound of guitars. And there, there was like, a friend of my uncle's had a big guitar and he'd leave it lying around my grandmother's place mm. and I'd be fascinated. I'd just got and struck the strings. Mm. And, and I used to think about guitars, even when I was, it was, this was a weird one. I was at primary school and I'd been to my dad's ballroom on a Saturday night and one Monday morning I was sitting there thinking about this guitar tune that was going through my head and it always used to go through my head when I go back to school. And the teacher came up and he said to me, what are you doing? Are you sitting there thinking about swinging a big red guitar and being a pop star when you grow up or something? I thought, fuck, teacher's psychic, man. <laughs> I didn't say a word. Where did he get that from? It's exactly what I was thinking of. Like, he really said that. It was incredible. Do you remember his name? Oh yeah, Mr. McKnight. Yeah, and he became the principal then after that. 
But some of the teachers didn't like me too much at all. But when I went to secondary school, the teachers, some of them were quite cool guys. The, the teachers that you wanted to be in with, I was in with, and mm. the cool teachers, the young, like the art teacher and the science teacher, and the, the cool guys, they were all right. So primary school were you at? I was called Strandtown. Strandtown Primary. Oh, that's where Mr McKnight worked. That's where Mr McKnight was, yeah. Uh, but I used to bunk off even then. I got caught when I was seven bunking. Oh, I was terrible. Yeah. I mean, I've never told my son this because he's having enough problems in school himself at the moment. But I'll tell you what, if he knew what I was like, he would never go to school if he thought I'd got away with it. But I got caught. And I got into a lot of trouble. And then when I went on to the other school, I just continued to do it. I just Sometimes I'd get on the bus in the morning. It would be a wet day. And you could get off the bus and walk another two miles that way to school, or you could stay on the bus and go to the guitar shop. Mm. So it was kind of like <laughs> the guitar shop got bigger in the school. <laughs> it was like school went faded off oh. in the distance. And it was a shame because I didn't end up with any real qualifications, but then I didn't feel that what I wanted to do rested on that at all. Yeah. No. Did you always feel though, that you would make something? Would I just dreamt it all in my head, you know. I just dreamt, yeah, I'm going to go to America and I'm going to be a. Guitarist and all that. And Did you think you really would be? Do you think you really believed that? Well, it's what I dreamt of, and it came true. So mm, absolutely, it did. I think things can come true if you dream them. I think, mm. I mean, a lot of my dreams have come true. I can't say they haven't, and more, much more than I ever dreamt has come true. I mean, to, mm. you know, musically, and to meet the people, meet all your heroes, and to work with them, and to have them tell you <coughs> that you're a great player, and to compliment your playing and all that. I mean, unbelievable things. Mm. Couldn't ask for more, really. Mm. So you were kidnapped in the van by these guys? Yeah, they just came, <laughs> they came along. There was a band called The Method, and the guitar player was a guy called Dave Lewis, who I knew, and uh, he'd had a car accident or something. So they just said, oh, you're coming with us. We need a guitarist to play with us in, in Dublin. So I said, well, you better, well, I'll have to ask my dad. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so I had to go, they had to drive me down to my house and can I go and play with these guys on Wednesday? And my dad's going, are they going to pay you? I guess so, yeah. All right, then, yeah. So he let me go, and then... They had a residency every Wednesday, and what happened was the bass player from Skid Row, who was a guy called Brush Shields, they were looking for a guitarist. It's just all coincidences. Mm. So he came to see me. He had heard about me from somebody in Dublin, and he came over and he, he liked my playing, and he asked me would I like to come and see his band, because they were mm. playing the same night every Wednesday at another club across the road. And I said, mm. I said, do you play blues? He said, no. Nah. I said, no, nah, I'm not fucking interested. Forget it. And he came back again, and I went over and I saw Phil. And that kind of sold me on the banner. This great big tall skinny black guy with a mic, no bass, just mm. making all these war noises through this echo unit and singing about war and stuff. And I thought he was pretty cool, you know. So yeah. that kind of sold me on it. And then I joined the band. Most what did of you like in those early days? In those days, oh, he was great, man. He was. He said the night I joined the band, <laughs> he said I'll meet you in the morning, nine o'clock. So he was pretty together in those days. Mm. He was up early every morning. And uh, later on, like we lived together, and he was like he was like your mum at one time. He'd be cooking breakfast, but it's really bad. I'm gonna ruin a whole myth here. But here, fucking eat this eggs, beans, and you'd be like, oh no, I feel sick, man, from last night. Leave me alone. And he'd feed, he was feeding this other guy, and our Johnny Doon was at another another um, band. And we'd all lived in this like bed set. It was unbelievable in Bulls Bridge. Anyway, you know he was great. He he'd always be up early, and he said, come on, I'll take you to this Chinese restaurant. So he got me to order something you wouldn't like, and he ate my food, and that kind of. From then on, that's how our relationship was. <laughs> Phil was always pulling things on me, and I was always falling for them. And it was like he was always in, in charge of that kind of thing. And Did you feel an instant friendship, as it were? Oh, I really, yeah. I mean, it was. It, it's hard with Phil, you know, to say what it was because I mean, we were very close in many ways. But Phil was a very hard guy to get to know. He was a, very much his own guy, you know. And he was kind of like one of those people. He's there, but he's not. You know, he was kind of like he had a real kind of. He built a lot of things around himself, Phil, because. 
you know, for a start, I mean, there weren't a lot of black people in Dublin. I only knew there was him and Dave Murphy. Mm -hmm. And it sounds funny, but the other guy was like a piano teacher. And, you know, Phil stood out like a sore thumb. And they go, hey, Skid, come here. And I'd say, well, they fucking calling you Skid, you know, because they thought Skid Row, they thought mm -hmm. he was Skid Row. He said, just ignore them, you know, it's like, and they, but they all loved him because they thought he'd come over with the missionaries or something, mm -hmm. he was an African or something, mm -hmm. it was hysterical, but I think it, it must have been, for him, must have been bloody hard just being that colour for a start and so growing up in Ireland. made him the character? Oh yeah, definitely, it was part of it. Mm -hmm. But he was a strong guy, you know, don't get me wrong, he could, be, he, could, he could get through it too, but he also had a lot of dreams for what he wanted to be, and I think he, he read the rock and roll story, the myth, you know, the... Um, mm -hmm the Jimi Hendrix version of, of how to be a rock star maybe and that kind of thing and I think that wasn't a good thing for him in the end because mm. he sort of bought into all that and he, he was a bit of a live fast die young kind of thing in the end and it was, that, was, that was a real shame and it was horrible when all that happened. Terrible. Did your friendship kind of depend on how he felt as it were, his moods? <laughs> well it was kind of like a reversal because when we first met he was the one who'd be up doing everything in the morning, he was like full of energy and then of course later on when he got into his 30s you know and that was kind of he, not long before he passed away, he'd kind of gone downhill a lot, and a lot of his energy had gone from the drugs and the booze and everything. And I was always felt like I was dragging him along there, and it was kind of weird. It was it all changed around because at that point I wasn't into any of that shit at all. I wasn't interested in that, and I was just trying to make records and be a musician. And I was probably a pain in the ass to be around for him because I was probably too speedy and too driven, and he was like, oh, very laid back about the whole thing he at that wanted point. To be into all that, didn't no, not at all, no. He never wanted me to be into what he was into, no. I'm sure he warned me about it, but... I mean, I used to drink and stuff, don't get me wrong, I was no angel, but I didn't get into what Phil got into. You know, the kind of harder drugs and everything, that all kind of... That was very bad for him, and I think... Uh, you know, at that time, it wasn't trendy to go into rehab. It's not like it is now. Yeah, yeah. He'd probably been all right now, yeah. do you know what I mean? He'd been down, he'd have been in there. Called? You know what I mean? He'd have been in the fucking Priory trying to pull Kate Moss. He'd have loved it in there. He'd been in with all the models. He'd have, he'd have got himself a habit just to get in there. Do you know what I mean? Because he did like the women. But at that time, it wouldn't have been any... He, he couldn't admit that he had a problem. And you know, it's the old cliche, but if you deny it, then no, if, you, if you don't want to help yourself, it's not going to happen. So he couldn't do it. He didn't... That's what he needed. Did you find that being in a band made you a babe magnet? A babe magnet? Yeah, the two Fuck, in America? It's like, I remember Eric Bell at a thing, as he said to me, you know when you go to America, you think you've discovered the secret of attracting women? Because <laughs> they'll send you little notes. You'd be like in a club in LA, and they'd be, you know, sending little notes and buying the drinks. And Back to my is your mind. name as great as your face or something stupid, oh, you know? Yeah. Really, like, corny stuff like that. And, but, yeah, they were pretty easy at that time, I tell you. You had to watch yourself. But they're all a bit mad as well. But did Phil sort of fall for that every time? As he he didn't look at it as falling for anything. Right. He just he was looking at it as having a time of his life. Right. <laughs> yeah. But he made me look like an altar boy. Do you know what I mean? He was. I mean, I was pretty good in that way on the road. I wasn't. I was never in his league. I promise you, because Phil would be like, you know, if anything moved, he'd be on it like a shot. You couldn't. You couldn't leave your girlfriend in the room with him. Really? Even if he knew that you were really into this girl, he would. Really? Straight in there, he'd move straight in there. It's just purely physical. Try it on. I don't know what it was, but right. it's like <laughs> I never wanted Did to you leave. Have a bus stop over a girl. Oh yeah, we had a big row once over a girl. Yeah. <laughs> Did you fight? No, we never had a physical fight in our lives. Yeah. No, people used to say that that would never happen. Mm. We fought with other people sometimes. We had a couple. Of, like we were at a, a launch for a record thing once, and we got into a couple of scuffles with. The, but that was kind of sticking up for each other then. No, we'd never have hit each other. I would never have done, no. 
musicians generally speaking don't really do that that much. You know, I know people. There are exceptions like the Who and a few other people, but I, you know, you don't want to hurt your hands for one thing. You know, if you really want to hurt somebody, you can hurt yourself. It's not worth it. And you know, by and large, I think musicians are a bunch of pussies, really. You know, in that sense, I mean, we talk a good fight, but a lot of the guys. It's just like, it's all talk, it's just that macho thing. And the Thin Lizzy thing was a very gang mentality. I've seen Phil get smacked a couple of times by people and come up with a bloody nose laughing, but the embarrassment of it, you know, it's like I've seen him in America get smacked. And, and I've seen him smack a couple of people and all, but, and I wouldn't have wanted to have gotten a fight with him, to be honest, because he was bigger than me. And he could whack you, you know, he was like, you know, he, he, could, he was from a hard area in Dublin, so I wouldn't have wanted, no. But I've, I've never been in a physical fight with anyone in a band in my life that I've been with. I've had scream ups, you know, really bad sort of fights in that sense, but no, nothing physical. Do you look back upon that time as your sort of golden days? Ah, not really, no. I mean I think there's good and bad and everything. I mean part of Thin Lizzy was great. Like there was one I was in and out of the band three times. I so I mean the, the period in late seventies when we did the Queen tour, again I, I was only standing in for Brian Robertson because he cut his hand up so they called me and uh, I went to America for three months. That was great. Because I just felt the pressure wasn't really on us, and I just got so much great experience out of playing like Madison Square Garden and everything. And Did you meet Freddie? Freddie never used to speak to me or any of us really. He used to, he was kind of a bit insecure because we were going down a little bit too well for his liking apparently. Uh, we met his boyfriend, he came in, Dane, and he, he came into the dressing room one night and he said, did anybody lose this? He sort of minced in, it was a scarf, it was one of Phil's scarves that he used to tie around, it was so scarfing. And Phil goes, Oh fuck! I've been looking everywhere for that thing. He said, and he went, "Well, look no further." And then he said, "You know, I'm not supposed to really be in here, but I think you guys are smashing." And he sort of minced out again before Freddie caught him in the dressing room with the rivals. But apparently, Freddie used to stomp around and say, "Listen to that applause, get them off." And we were getting like really good reviews and stuff. But yeah, but I mean, they were doing great. Queen were great, man. They were doing great, and we were just the underdogs. So the press took a liking to us, like they do in America. Yeah. It was like all the way through, but you know, you'd be at the airport sometimes, there'd be like, great review for Lizzie, and maybe not such a good one for them, mm -hmm. and it would be really embarrassing, we'd all be on the same flight and stuff, mm -hmm. and oh fuck. <laughs> and the only time Freddie ever spoke to me, he'd lost his voice, so he couldn't speak, we were caught in the lift, and he couldn't avoid me this day, and he sort of, so he wouldn't even speak even then. That was it. <laughs> but the other guys were, I mean, the bass player was quiet, John Deacon, but the other two guys, we used to go out with them all the time, Roger and Brian, I still know Brian, yeah, mm -hmm. great guys, yeah. You explained that very few people got to know Phil very well. Do you feel that you got to know him better than most people? I got to know him, yeah. I mean, I did get to know him more over the, over the years, yeah. And we spent a lot of time just on our own away from other people, and that's when I felt we'd get to know each other a bit more. But having said that, I'd be pissed, he'd be out of it. So a lot of the time, the memories aren't as clear as, as they should be, really. That's, it's a shame. Mm. Because what happened was, see, I left the band in the middle of the tour. And so we didn't speak for four years. And then in the mid-'80s, Phil and I got together again, having made up. We sort of met in an airport one day, and we sort of got together again after that and made friends, and we did a song called Out in the Fields, and that became a big hit. Yeah. And then I was really grateful for the fact that we were able to do that, and then he died shortly after that. But around that time, we were definitely spending a lot of time together because we did a lot of promotion together, and he came and played on a couple of my gigs on my tour. He didn't even have a band at that time. But he changed a lot personally. Yeah, he, was very, he wasn't very happy. You could tell he was a Oh, trouble. fuck yeah. Yeah, he wouldn't say it, but he could tell. But he was a good mate for you, so was it, did it hurt you to see him in that state? Yeah, but he wouldn't listen to anybody. I mean, don't think I didn't try. Because right. a lot of people probably tried, and I did speak to him about it on various occasions. Can you remember one of them? Well, yeah, when I was in the band, when I was in Thin Lizzy, and 
we were flying back and forward and gigs were being cancelled because someone with a bright idea had let Phil have a couple of nights off in Amsterdam <laughs> in the middle of the tour, not a good idea. And he was sitting there with stomach cramps and the drum riser and then we'd cancel the gig and we'd go home and maybe come back or whatever the next day and then the last couple of shows got cancelled altogether. But that day he was in bed in, I think it was Brussels or somewhere, and I went to see him and I had a big talk with him. He says, you know, don't you want to see your kids grow up? And I had a big talk about all that stuff and he went, yeah, thanks, yeah. But nothing changed. <laughs> No, Phil was his old man. You couldn't tell Phil what to do, man. You couldn't. Again, it, it was that macho thing. He wouldn't have wanted to have admitted that he had a weakness in any way. So that would have been an admission of weakness to say he had a problem. As far as he was concerned, he could handle anything. But of course, you know, with that shit, it catches up on everyone. It doesn't matter who you are. It'll get you in the end. Unless Did you, you really feel it. he was on a slippery slope? He was on his mm. way out? Well, no, that's not. At that point, later on, mm. I thought he was in trouble around the time of that in the fields. Because I'd go over to his house and he'd come down and he was just, he wasn't happy. You could tell he wasn't feeling good. Because he'd come down with a bloody whiskey in one hand and a spliff in the other. It was only like he'd just gotten out of bed and it might be like lunchtime or whatever. And he had a little studio at the back of his, in his garage in Kew. We, we did all the demos for out in the fields in that studio and we were spending a lot of time around each other. But yeah, he was in trouble, definitely. How long did you see him before he died? And when was the last time you saw him? Well, we toured after that, and then he did a couple of... Th I think the last time I saw him was at a gig in Manchester. And I can't remember what month that would have been. It must have been late summer or autumn of uh, 85. And then he, he collapsed on Christmas Day, and he went into hospital, and he didn't come out after that. How did you hear about it? I was in the Canaries with my wife at the time, and her parents were living there. And uh, her dad came up to me and he had read something. He says, oh, I've heard your mate. Your mate's not very well, you know. And I was, hey, what? And it kind of went from there. Yeah, it was, very, it was awful afterwards. It was like, I couldn't believe it. Even though, you know, people go, oh, yeah, he's next. He's going to go. He's going to go. But when it happens, man, forget it. It was just like, you know, you just kind of, uh, you can't believe you're never going to see him again. Did you cry when he died? Oh, fuck. Well, it took me a couple of days because it's not an easy thing for me to do. I'm one of those people. Uh, but I went out for a drink and uh, I go into this bar and they start playing our songs and stuff, you know, and this guy comes up to me and he says, oh, sorry about Phil, and kind of escalated from there and, oh, yeah, I went home that night, man. <laughs> Fucking let rip. Mm. Let rip. It's terrible. Did you go to the funeral? No. I was... No, I didn't, actually. I was out there. I was stuck out there for a while and I couldn't even get back. Couldn't get a flight back. You but I, I didn't want to... I didn't... I've been to near where the grave is. I haven't been to the actual grave. Why? Um, no, I just didn't want to go there. I didn't want to remember him dead. You know what I mean? I wanted to remember him the way, the way he was, and to me that was just the way it was. That's how I felt at the time. What about his family? You still in touch with him? No, not at all. His mother lives in Ireland, and uh, his wife, ex-wife Caroline, and the children. I think they live in Bath or something. Mm. Yeah. So. Uh, and you say you like to remember him as he was. How do, how do you remember him? What's, what's the sort of memory you have of him? Well, he was quite character and he was just somebody... It's like I didn't literally grow up with him, but I kind of felt like I did because mm. he was always there, you know. He was always there somewhere in my life. And mm. um, if things ever got a bit tricky for me in the music business, like if I wasn't... If I couldn't get a, a kind of angle on what was happening, he was always good at putting things into perspective. And he was always he was always great in that way, you know. He wouldn't let things kind of... Say, like, if there was a new trend in music, and I'd go, what's all this? He'd kind of 
he could put it into into perspective for you and say, oh, it's just this, it's just punk, yeah, it's just this with that, you know, it's okay. And then you go, yeah, you're right, it is, what's the problem, you know? He was always great in that, he was, he was quite, a, quite a mentor in that way. But, you know, I think we got a lot out of each other. I think he kind of liked working with me and we did some good music together and that was, at the end of the day, that's what was important to us. You know, if we, if we did anything that was good, that it kind of overcame the other problems because it was a bit of a love-hate thing at times and, mm. you know, we would bust up, like I said, and not talk for a long time or whatever. There was, there was kind of good and bad times. Do you like the way he's been remembered or do you think he's not remembered enough? I don't really know. I mean, uh, I think Thin Lizzy I always remember with affection and because he kind of was Thin Lizzy in a lot of people's perception, I think he's remembered fondly. I don't think he's remembered in any kind of negative way. No. So, so that's a good thing, and he's left. So he, and he wrote some good songs, and you know. To what extent do you credit him with your own kind of success, of sort of breaking you through? Well, yeah. I mean, he definitely helped me. I mean, things like Parisian Walkways, that was my first solo hit, and that existed as a as a kind of tune on its own before Phil got involved. But he wrote the vocal part, and if if he hadn't sung on it, I don't think it would have been anywhere near as big. So there was always a kind of combination of, of the two of us there, I think. And same with that in the fields, although I wrote out in the fields completely. Phil put the spin on it with, the, the, you know, the military uniforms, and he, mm. he sold it, that mm. song, he, no doubt about it. He was very good at all that. He was very clever with all the kind of um, imaging of a band and the, and the kind of marketing of, of a record and stuff. He was great with all that. He liked all that. He enjoyed it, and he was bloody good at it. Were you happier as part of a band or as a solo artist? I'm happier doing my own thing, definitely. Right. There's too many fucking politics and bands for my life. And right. there's always somebody bitching behind the scenes, or if it's not them, it's their, their wife or their girlfriend. There's always somebody stirring it up and moaning and jealousy over who's getting the most this and blah, blah, blah. There's always something going on, and I don't like it at all. I'd just rather do my own thing. It's easier for me. When you started doing your own thing and becoming hugely successful, were there sort of uh, expectations of you within yourself and by other people to say, right, we want to mould you this way? And no, not really. I've got to be honest about that. I mean, I signed to Virgin Records in the early 80s, and that's when I started my solo thing in earnest, I suppose. And uh, no, they never, because they were quite laid back at that time, and Richard Branson would come down to the studio, see me uh, in the middle of an album, just come down once, stick his head in the door and go, yep, sounds good, off we'd go again. I mean, I don't think he was a particularly big fan of mine or anything, but he was just, at least he did it, it was nice. But no, they kind of let me have pretty much free reign in, in what I did, and... They, they were cool in that way. It wasn't until EMI took over, you know, in the 90s, and then, like, Paul Conroy got involved and they, they put all their own people in there, that it became a bit more corporate. But then that was a general trend in the industry at that time. That was just the way it was going. And they'd start to get a bit more, like, you know, feel that they had to have more input. And, of course, I've, you know, I'm not very easy in that way. I'm one of those difficult people that likes to kind of say what they feel. And so I wouldn't always take their suggestions. And I mean, one time they edited one, of, they did an edit on one of my singles and didn't tell me. Mm. And I was really pissed off because, you know, I'd sold a lot of records for them. Yeah. By that point, this is like, I've just still got the blues, which is when it kind of took off. And, you know, I just thought, that's so insulting. Mm. And I said, if you wanted an edit, I could have done it. Mm. And in fact, I will do it because that's not going out. Yeah, if you just, they didn't even, they just said, I'll play them the edit. Mm. It's fucking, wait to hear the edit, it's really cool. And I thought mm. that was so dismissive. And then you're sort of like uh, explaining your music to people that, and then you're going, why am I fucking explaining this? It's just, give me this, I'll do it, I'll do the edit, don't worry, it'll be better, and you'll get the song at the right length, mm -hmm. don't worry. We know what we're doing, don't worry, fellas. And it all kind of changed around that time. And then I got <coughs> dropped by Virgin eventually, 
Uh, they dropped loads and loads of people around the same time. And I actually didn't mind because I really wasn't happy there by that point. But I had been, you know, they had been a good label for a long time. They were great. No, they didn't interfere too much before that, no. And the people still don't. They still, you know, sanctuary, they don't tell me what to play or they don't try to push me in any direction. I have to say, they're, they're really cool like that. What about image? Do people, have people ever tried to... What image? Have they ever tried to say, oh, we want you in a suit? No, 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 there wouldn't be any point. I was just, I've always just done my own thing. I don't really have that kind of thing at all and quite flexible, really. I mean, there's been... I mean, I'll, yeah, I'll say that to you now, and then you'll look back. If you saw one of my old videos, you go, oh, yeah, right. Like, from the 80s or something, with the big hair and yeah. fucking long coats and all that. That's just kind of what was happening at that time. So How do you feel looking back? It was part, it's just the way it was. I mean, it's like the music. If you wanted to have a career and you played guitar in the 80s, you kind of played heavy rock or heavy metal, mm. and you find yourself in a world where you don't really belong, because I really don't feel that I ever fitted into that in the way maybe other musicians did which is, you know, why I ended up going back to playing blues again and did Still Got the Blues. That was the end of that whole 80s thing. And I just had it up to here with that whole heavy metal thing in the big circus and having to spend, like, days talking about the stage set and the fucking lights and having mm. meetings with the lighting designer instead of practising your guitar playing. And mm. Everything was getting kind of, like, sidelined, all the important things. And I just felt, oh, I don't belong here, bollocks to this. I'm going out with a blues band. There's going to be no set. We're going to just play music. And we've kind of done that ever since, really, in various, you know bands and that and various lineups but I've kept it pretty simple since then and I've got caught up in the circus again because I, I think that's once you do that mm -hmm. you can't go back you know it's mm -hmm. like once you get caught when I mean, we had like Andy Pandy's fucking playroom at one stage it looked like a big cubist stage set and you had to go up to the top oh, and play the solo and mm -hmm. oh it was a joke mm -hmm. you couldn't even get to your amplifiers because mm -hmm. they're all hidden behind these mm -hmm. scrims and mm -hmm. it's all pathetic if I look at it now and I laugh I mean I've seen it lately actually and I do have a good laugh at it but it, it's not funny really it's just like how did you get to that? Did you ever get mobbed or was people screaming at your concerts? Or? Mobbed? In Japan you used to get mobbed a lot because they used to be, they used to get a bit excited. You get these Japanese fans and they just follow you everywhere. There was one girl who followed me all the way around Japan. She was really about 18. And then I came over here and I was outside Hammersmith and there she was. She'd followed us all the way over here. And then I went to all over Europe and there she was at every gig. And if I even said hello to her, she'd just go, oh, cry. And I don't know where she was getting the money from, this yeah, poor kid, yeah. you know, but... So I gave up even trying to be nice to her then, because yeah. if I was nice to her, she couldn't take mm -hmm. it. So I went to America, there she was, all across the state. She did the whole world tour with us. I think in the end, the road crew took her on the bus and just looked after her, because she was on her own. She couldn't have been more than about 18, this girl. So you, you think, find them in your hotel room and stuff? Well, they used to come bang on the door and stuff, right. you know. And, oh, God, please take me. Oh, fucking leave me alone, will you? Really? Did you never take them? No, you don't, because it's like... If you no, I tell you what, don't shag your fans. No. <laughs> it's absolutely mm. don't, mm. because if you get a nutter, mm. and believe me, I've met a couple, and they stalk you, mm. and you can get followed around. They'll come to your house, and they'll find out where they go on the fucking electoral register, and they'll find out where you live, right. and they'll come looking for you. So you've had a couple stalking. Just well, it was one in particular, but I don't want to talk about it, please. That's right. But you do get them if you encourage no, that kind of be no yeah. European. That's all I'm saying. Right. Please leave it, in case they read it. Yeah. Oh, yeah, I forgot I was stalking him on Stargate. Oh, you know, when I used to live in Henley, there was a woman, there was this lady, she came along one day. But the trouble was, I started, I started getting really paranoid. And I went and bought a big house in the countryside near Henley and had electric gates and everything. And I'm in the garden with my kid one day, and this woman comes along. And she's only gone to my old house where she knew, which somehow found out where I lived. And the people have only fucking told her where I've moved to. Great, thanks a lot. And she comes up to my gates and she's standing, Gary! Gary, and I'm going, oh shit, my kids in the garden, you don't want anyone near your mm. kids. 
So I go, I said, what do you want? She goes, oh, your son's really nice. He's got a nice kid. Uh, what the fuck do you want? I said, mm -hmm. by the way, you see all these cameras here? I told her they were like, yeah. they were videotape security yeah. cameras. They weren't. Didn't help George Harrison. Don't. Oh, don't. Um, but so she, she just wanted some water as well. She was a fan, but she had some medicine to take. She had some ailments, and, and so I got somebody to give her some water. And I felt really bad, but that was how paranoid mm. I'd sort of gotten. Mm. That if anybody came near, came near me or anything, it was like, mm. see, so stop building this kind of thing around. It was a lot of bollocks. I'm not like that now at all. Mm. Do you think you've led the rock and roll lifestyle much? At times, but I've, it's not something I've done for a long, long time. Not mm. at all. I've never been into, like, coke or anything like that, or hard drugs. And In fact, I got my drugs out of my system pretty much before I was 20, between the ages of sort of 16 and 20 got bored with it after that it's just not it's just not me it's not my thing you know and I did you know I used to take acid and that it was the late 60s that's what you did do a few gigs on acid have a bad time you'll soon stop <laughs> you'll get so scared you won't do it again you know, I got it all out of my system really quick used to take a bit of speed and uh, I was a kid has it had its effect on you as you've got older I mean, I think I did it so young, mm. you know what I mean? It was pretty out of my system. Because nowadays we hear of rock stars drinking mineral water and going on running machines and eating salads. And is that you now? Are I you don't go to extremes, do you know what I mean? Mm. Uh, I mean, I do drink water, when, like I'm drinking water today, but I won't be drinking water tonight. But I'm not a heavy drinker either. I mean, I think that's just as soon as you get older, that's nothing to do with rock stars or anything. I think mm. it's a bit sad to be doing that when you get into your 50s, isn't it? And mm. keep doing all that shit. It's like, mm. I mean, I think when people are doing that, it's because they're not happy with other stuff and you know you can use alcohol as a thing to relax that's fine but no nah. I'm not into drugs and I don't go out to clubs and I don't I just look I'm a dad you know what I mean I just like look after my kids and pay the school fees and mm. take them to school when I'm not working but a lot of the time I'm thinking about music and I'm writing songs or I'm playing my guitar just sitting in my lounge at home in the living room just playing guitar or whatever so I'm very aware that I'm a musician but I also lead a pretty normal life and I'm glad about that I don't want to get back into that other world again I think at one time I did live a, a very unreal kind of existence you know when, when things got very big at one point and I was kind of insulated from everything mm. I, I had nowhere to go it was like fuck I couldn't even get out of the house you just end up building a big wall around yourself so I didn't like that at all Do you still miss Phil? Um, I, st I think about him sometimes you know and yeah I guess I do you know you always miss people when there's not an opportunity to kind of see them again. Of course, yeah. When uh, did you leave Ireland? When? When? Oh, okay, uh, I think it was about 1970. I moved to Dublin from Belfast about a year and a half before that, and then I moved over here with Skid Row. And I've pretty much been here ever since. I've lived in the States twice. I lived in LA for a year in the early 80s, and then I lived in Connecticut for a year uh, in the early 90s. Wow. Well, I've, you know, I've travelled around a lot, obviously been all over the world and stuff, but um, I've mainly lived in England since those days. What, why England, though? I mean, does Ireland not feel like home to you? Well, I think it's one of those things, it's hard to go backwards again, isn't it, that situation? It kind of seems a little bit small, you know, if you go back to, like, Dublin or whatever, I certainly wouldn't go back in Belfast, there's no reason for me to go back there. Did the troubles put you off? Um, God, yeah, put anybody off, wouldn't it? I wasn't mad about Belfast in those days. Anyway, I was quite happy to go to Dublin and just get out and Belfast was a pretty hard town to grow up in but you know I, I do like visiting it I like going back and, and all that but what happened to your accent? it's gone 
Well, I, I didn't like the way I talked when I was a kid, so I decided I wasn't going to talk like that anymore. There was a few of us at school that, you know, when you're teenagers and you think you, you're a real smart ass and you think you know it all, so we decided we weren't going to talk like that anymore. And now I've got a sort of combination of all kinds of weird accents. Mm. But so you actually consciously changed your voice? No, my voice, no, we were just kids and we just sort of grew up, we just didn't want to talk like that anymore. Oh. <laughs> so just... But a lot of it has worn off, yeah, to be honest, yeah, yeah. you know. I suppose if you get pissed off, you can come out again yeah. now. <laughs> like anybody's accent, you know, if you get if you get in a mood, it can come out. If you go back to Ireland, do you pick up a bit of Irish again, do you think? I don't, I don't go back and put on an Irish accent, if that's what you mean. No, no, no. I put I've seen on. people do that on telly, yeah. and I think it's really embarrassing. No, I just, this is just how I talk. Would you never live there again? I don't think so, no. Right. No, I don't think so. I mean, I, I wanted to come here from when I was a kid, and all the music I liked was coming out of England. Mm. So that was a big thing for me, and sort of, you know, especially London. It's always been a special place in that way. But, no, I don't think I'd want to live back in Ireland full-time. I wouldn't mind spending more time there, but I don't think I'd want to live there. No. So you haven't got a property out there? No, I haven't got a property anywhere except here. Mm. And people talk about you as a guitar legend. How does that feel? Do you like that label? Or do you find it a bit embarrassing? Listen, man, if you saw me fucking unloading the dishwasher in the morning, <coughs> you wouldn't be calling me any kind of legend. All right, that's my answer to that. Mm. Do you know what I mean? It's like this whole... It just makes me laugh, stuff like that. I mean, it's like, imagine asking somebody, what does it feel like to be a legend or something? I mean, fuck, who knows? What does a legend feel like? You know, it's like, you're just you, aren't you? And you're, whatever you do, if you're a guitar player or if you're a singer or whatever, you just, you know, you don't feel any different. You just hope that you can do it well and have to keep going and just try and get better at it. More the point. That's that's what it's about for me. It's about the music. And do you feel you're given the credit you deserve there? Oh, I think so. I mean... You know, people go, oh, you're underrated. Or, you know, I think lots of people are underrated and overrated. I think I've been overrated sometimes, and I think I've been underrated in others, definitely. Mm. Just depends. But I don't kind of... You, you can't really rate yourself because you kind of think, well, you know who you look up to and you know who you don't, but you can't see what you do the way other, other people see it or hear it the way... It would be great if you could because you could probably get a lot better at it if you, if you could hear things the way other people could hear them and... You might be able to improve it. Do you know what I mean? That's what I've always thought. But you can't ever get away from your own music. That's it. It's, it's you know, you can't listen to it. I mean, what you do is you hear your own music and you hear what's wrong with it, mm. as opposed to hearing what other people hear. They just hear a piece of music, but you hear what's gone into it. Mm. So that's kind of that's difficult. Do you feel that Ireland claim you as one of their own? That you, you know, I'm not sure how much affection there is for me in Ireland because. Um, well, I did still got the blues, for example. I think the only place it wasn't a platinum record was Ireland. It didn't sell in Ireland, out of all the places. But then we put out a compilation later on called Ballads and Blues. I don't know if they thought it was a folk album or something, but that did really well. <laughs> it still got the blues, didn't sell in Ireland. Uh, and I didn't tour over there at the time, so I mean, it, they'd be quite right to not hold me in the highest of esteem because I haven't played that much over the years, and they probably feel like I've disowned them, so maybe they've disowned me. But I played a couple of years ago, and it was great. Played in Dublin, it was that was great. Really enjoyed it. Do you intend to play till you drop, or retire one day? Or? Oh fuck, I don't know, man. It's like I have a bad time. I always said I'm gonna fucking knock it on the head if I get mm. pissed off, and then I don't. You know, it's like mm. I don't think you can. I don't think it's that simple. I think if you knocked it on the head, you you may as well fuck it. You'd be dead. What were you gonna do? Play golf or what? Mm. You know, you can't get another job. But I mean, I don't. I, I don't. Um, there's a lot of things about the business I don't like, and a lot of the stuff you can do with that and sometimes you, you say to yourself well you could just play locally and just I mean I wouldn't mind if you ended up just doing that just playing in, in a local sense or not like doing all the travelling and everything that would be alright yeah. but then you know there's musicians 
I mean, in the blues world, I'm a kid. I mean, I'm 52, you know, but I'm a kid. So they're like, look at B.B. King, he's 78, man. He's doing more gigs a year than a lot of us put together. Mm. People like that and all these guys, you know, they go on forever. But I'm not saying I would do that. When you play with people like that, you must look at them and think, I'm not doing badly for a Belfast kid. Fucking right, you know what I mean? You just, you can't believe you're up there with them. Mm. You still got that, I mean, that's when you get really excited, it's when you do yeah. things like that. You yeah. look across the stage, and there's Albert Cohen standing there, and Albert yeah. King next to him, and you're all yeah. playing the same notes. You're all playing the same yeah. riffs together. It's, yeah, it's quite a, quite a thrill, I tell you. And how do you want people to remember you after you've gone? Oh, fuck, I don't know. It's however they want. <laughs> what about as a musician? Well, somebody that didn't bullshit, somebody that was, uh, at least, you know, whatever I did, at least I meant it. <laughs> that's all I could say, really, because I usually do mean it. So I'm not full of shit like a lot of people, so at least uh, whatever I do, whether it sells or not, at least I mean it at the time and I'm honest about it, which I think is the only way to be. This is Peter Jonathan Robertson. I hope you've enjoyed my interview with the late, great Gary Moore from 2004. If you'd like to comment on that or any of my other interviews in the PJ archive, you can find me on Twitter at PeterJonathanR2.